they uh, tell me this is an urban legend, but I always thought it was true. So for years I'd use this in sermons and Sunday school lessons. But it's the story of how you catch a monkey. You know, you get a coconut or a gourd or something like that, and you cut out a, a small opening there on one end, big enough for the monkey to squeeze his hand in. And then you clean out what's on the inside, and then you put something in there that the monkey's really going to love. A banana, some nuts, an iPhone. <laughs> Sooner or later, the monkey's going to come along and notice and really want it, and so he reaches inside. But in order for the monkey to grab the nuts or grab the banana, he's got to make a fist. And now with that tight fist, he can't get his hand out of this homemade jar. So he's trapped, and it becomes easy to catch. Now, you would think somebody would come along to kind of reason with him, Mr. Monkey, right now that banana's not doing you any good. Right now it's not making you happy. You're not benefiting from it at all. If you keep clutching onto this, it's just going to mean slavery and death. If you'll just let go, if you'll just let go, it means freedom, joy, life, Community with other monkeys? <laughs> but the monkey won't listen. He won't let go. Or that's how the story's told, anyway. But apparently in real life, no monkey has ever actually been caught this way because monkeys aren't that stupid and monkeys aren't that greedy. But do you know who is? <laughs> do you know who does get trapped this way? People. I mean, you just take a look around this next week at all the monkey jars that we have. The people, places, things where our heart gets stuck. Stuck on something that's not doing us a bit of good. You remember that guy that Rob talked about last week? That young man that came running up to Jesus? And the very fact that he's running tells you something about it. That young man's hungry. He's hungry for something better. Hungry for a better life. We know him as the rich, young ruler. So anyway, this young man comes running up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what do I need to inherit eternal life? I mean, I've been following all the rules. I've been very religious in the way I've, I've lived my life. What more do I need to do to have something better? And Jesus basically said, get your hand out of the monkey jar. Let go of that stuff that you're clutching, that wealth. Sell it, give it away. Give it away to people who really need it, and then come follow me. And there's the key part of the wisdom that Jesus was sharing with him. Stop holding on to this so now that you can grab and hold on to this. Come Follow me. In other words, let God be your God. Not that monkey jar. And yet the rich man wouldn't let go of his riches. And so the Bible says he walked away. He walked away from Jesus. And as he walked away, the Bible said he was sad. Very, very sad. Why? Because he chose a monkey jar over the Lord. Well, he's not alone. Just walk around the block. Drive around the neighborhood and see all the monkey jars that we got out there. Houses portfolios, crazy lifestyles, people eating too much, drinking too much, living way beyond their means. And why? Because we won't let go of these silly dreams, these silly fantasies. Hey, I just need a little bit more, and then I'm really going to be happy. Or think about all the people who are still clutching onto their anger, feeding a grievance, nursing a grudge, seeking ways to get even, because if I don't tighten my grip on this issue, if I don't maintain some kind of control here, then things are never going to be right again. See, truth is, we all have a monkey jar of some kind. Something that's keeping us trapped, something that's keeping us stuck in an attitude, a lifestyle, it's not doing us any good. Way back in 1979, there was this magazine, Good Housekeeping, and they had this article on addiction. 
But the fascinating thing about the article was they weren't talking about drug addiction or our addiction to alcohol. And they weren't talking about our addiction to tobacco or the addictions that we have to food and candy. No, the whole article was about our addiction to TV. See, there was a newspaper in Detroit, a newspaper that made this offer to 120 different families. Hey, uh, we'll give you $500 if for the next month you'll agree not to watch any TV. 30 days, no TV, you can have $500. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? And yet, guess how many families turned them down? Of the 120 families, 93 of them said, no, sorry, can't do it. And then they found out why, that these families were watching TV anywhere from 40 to 70 hours a week. Man, to suddenly for 30 days go with no screen time? What would we do? How would we make it? How would we live? Sorry, I don't want to take my hand out of that monkey jar. But here was the really interesting thing to me in, in that article. Of the 27 families who decided to give this experiment a try, hey, 30 days, no TV. Okay, we'll try it. They learned three things. Number one, it was hard to go cold turkey. Man, we've been plugged into this drug for so long, it's, it's hard to be apart. It's like you're having to leave an old friend. This TV has become such a part of our daily routine, it's going to be hard to do without it. But then, number two, they learned that once they stopped watching TV, all kinds of good things began to happen. Books were pulled off the shelf and people started to read again. Families began to play games with each other. Suddenly, children had all kinds of time to do their homework and practice their piano lessons. In fact, at the end of the 30 days, all 27 families said they'd really become closer to each other. There was more eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball time. The level of patience and love and concern that they had for each other just went way, way up. But then here's the third thing they learned, and it's really sad. After 30 days and every one of those 27 homes got their $500, they went back to the old ways. They went back to the old routine. They went back to watching TV 40 to 70 hours a week, they put their hand back in the monkey jar. Why? Well, I think the scripture that we're going to look at today gives an explanation. Uh, the past couple weeks, we've been talking about the, the fruit of the Spirit as it's listed here in the book of Galatians. And today, we look at the very last item on the list. It's this item that's called self-control. But here's where we get ourselves into trouble. We tend to focus on the last part of the verse and not the first part. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Well, if you're like me, you forget about that first part, and you just focus on that second part, self-control. And we begin to think, hey, it's all about me and what I do. I've just got to learn to say no, and then everything else is going to change for the better. If I do my part, everything else will change. So that red velvet cake that's sitting in the refrigerator, and I can hear it calling my name. Or that pornographic website that's only one click away on my computer, or that difficult person who's been pushing my buttons all day long and more than anything else, I'd just love to let that guy have it. Yet in every one of those situations, if I'm going to keep myself from getting into trouble, I've got to learn to say, no. Well, I'm sorry, that strategy does not work. Do you remember back in the 1980s when Nancy Reagan was the first lady in the White House and she started this campaign, just say no. And then all the police departments got on board and they began, they started these programs in our local school, school districts. It was called DARE, D-A-R-E, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. 
I remember my son and daughter, TJ and Sarah, they were a part of this when they went through the Brownsburg school system. There in Brownsburg, we had one specific police officer just dedicated to this project. Every day, driving around to the different schools and campuses and teaching and training the young people how to respond to the temptation, how to deal with the peer pressure. Hey, if you're at a party and somebody tries to put a drink or a pill in your hand, you just say no. Well, sadly, 20 years later, 20 years after this campaign got started, the year 2001, the U.S. Surgeon General came out and made a confession. He says, it's not working. The program doesn't work. And why? Because it doesn't go deep enough. See, it's not enough to make a change in your vocabulary and learn how to say no if at the same time there's not a change in your heart and what you desire. Because if there isn't a change here, then sooner or later, you're just going to cave in to the pressure. So, step back. For a moment and let's understand something about our heart the human heart and how it works bruce springsteen used to sing everybody's got a hungry heart and he's right that's exactly the way god made it see we're like sharks sharks have to move in order to live they can't stand still they've got to move in order to live human beings are the same way we were not made to stand still we were made to move meaning we are made to go after something. We are made to be for something. We're made to have a goal in mind and then pursue it, go after it. So to help pull us in that direction, to help us to get up and go, to, to really seek and chase after that which is meaningful and worthwhile, God put these yearnings and longings, these desires in our heart, so we'd get hungry, so we'd want to go after what is good and significant. Everybody's got a hungry heart because that's the way God made us. But the problem is, sin comes along and takes that hunger, takes that appetite and twists and distorts it, so now we become hungry for the wrong things. You know, we're made to love, we're made to care, but we end up caring deeply about the wrong things, or we end up caring deeply about things that don't really matter. You know, we'll crowd ourselves into a stadium to cheer for our favorite team, and that's fine. And yet we won't get out of bed on Sunday morning to come to church and praise our Heavenly Father. That's not fine. We'll get all charged up and rally together and say, save the whales. That's fine. And yet we don't voice one word of protest when every year abortion kills more than a million babies. That's, that's not fine. We'll, we'll rearrange our schedules and make sure we never miss our favorite TV show. And yet we make no changes at all to make sure we've got plenty of time to pray. Where's the heart? And where's that heart? pulling this. Do we care about the things that truly matter? So the question is, how do we get ourselves in a place where now the heart is being controlled in the right way, where our heart is now being controlled by the right impulses and the right kind of desires? Well, think of it like this. Think of a child, a little child, and this little child's got a hold of a, a rusty knife. So they're playing with something that's dangerous, and they don't even realize it. And yet, because of the selfish nature of this child, they don't want to let go. Hey, I got a new toy here. I want to spend some time playing with this. Well, they're too little to be playing with knives, so you've got to get this thing out of their hands. How do you do it? Well, number one, brute force. <laughs> you just come along and pull it out. Sorry, you can't have it. You cry all you want. You can't have it. And you've got to do that. Or number two, you can just stand back and shout at them. Shout at them long enough, and maybe eventually or reluctantly, they'll finally let go. But the problem with both those methods, just pulling it out and shouting it out, you don't do anything to change the heart. See, deep inside that little child, there's still this curiosity, this fascination. Man, what would it be like to play with that rusty knife? So maybe the next time when you're not around, they're going to go ahead and check it out. So why not try a different strategy? Instead of just pulling it out and shouting it out, why not offer the child something better? 
a new toy, something brighter and fancier and much, much safer, something much more appealing than that old rusty knife. So soon the, the, the knife is just quickly forgotten because now you've given the child something else to hold on to, something more engaging and entertaining to play with. Isn't that exactly the strategy that Jesus was trying to teach in Matthew chapter 12 when he says, cast out the demons? And now the house, the life becomes clean. And that's wonderful. But Jesus warned, but if the house, if the light just remains empty, it won't be long before those evil spirits come back. So how do you keep that from happening? Jesus said, fill the house. Let somebody else, let somebody new move in here. Let somebody else take occupancy, reside here. <laughs> okay? Let somebody else live here. So now there's no more room for the demons. In fact, now you don't even want to open the door to the demons because this new person who resides here has become your very best friend. They're actually doing good things for you, and they're helping to move your life in a better direction. That's exactly what is being taught here in Galatians chapters 5 and 6. Let the Holy Spirit of God move in. I mean, really move in and begin to influence your life. He's the one that changes the heart. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Let the Holy Spirit create new delights and new desires and new attitudes. How does that happen? Well, one of the ways the Bible answers that question is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8. This is the verse I want us to focus upon this morning. Galatians chapter 6 and, and verse 8 says, Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What are we talking about? To sow to the flesh, it means to gratify it, satisfy it, cater to it. Indulge it, accommodate it, uh, just pander to its every whim. In other words, every time you allow your mind to harbor a grudge or to nurse a grievance, every time you allow your mind to entertain uh, a fantasy of some kind, or every time you allow yourself to just sit there and wallow in your self-pity, you're sowing seed. You're helping to develop, you're, you're encouraging those wrong thoughts, those wrong attitudes. You're helping those evil, evil things to grow and get a stronger grip on your mind. And see, instead of replacing the evil, you're reinforcing the evil. You're taking those wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes, and by thinking about it all the time, you're treating it like a pet. You stroke it, you cuddle it, you coddle it, you, you hold it close to your heart, so as a result, it becomes harder and harder to send this evil thing away. Every time you verbalize your anger and you mumble another complaint and you keep meditating on all your, gri your gripes, those attitudes and thoughts just get a stronger and stronger grip on your heart. They keep typing. Those evil things keep being typed on the keyboard of your mind and that evil becomes a much more permanent part of your life. Paul says you got to stop that. Stop sowing those seeds. And in order to stop sowing the wrong seed, get busy, get engaged, and keep yourself busy sowing the right kind of seed. Instead of sowing to the flesh, learn how to sow to the Spirit. And again, what are we talking about? Well, we're not just talking about a principle. We're talking about an actual person, a real person, getting engaged with the Holy Spirit of God. See, it's like any good friendship. If I want to enjoy a good friendship with somebody else, then there's got to be hearing and there's got to be speaking. I've got to give that other person an opportunity to really open up and just share their heart with me. And then I need to take time to just really open up and share my heart with them so that we begin to get better acquainted with each other. And we begin to appreciate one another more and more. And as that begins to happen, we get closer and closer and closer. Same way you want to develop a strong, 
healthy relationship with God, then you must give God time, time, to just let Him open His heart and share that with you. And then you need time to just open up and share your heart with Him. We're talking about prayer, reading your Bible. I know that sounds so simple. Or others of you think, ah, yeah, 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 I know, David, you're a preacher. I knew sooner or later you get around to this. Daily devotions, okay, if I must, I must. I'll set aside 15 minutes a day and I'll do my duty, check. Listen, if all you do is just open a book and go through a routine, that 15 minutes is just going to be a waste of time. No, the reason why you open this book is so you can listen to him. So let me make a suggestion. Just, I know this is a struggle sometimes. I struggle with this too. To make this time with God more meaningful and more real. Let me make this, this is just one of many ways you can do it. So this may not work for you, but give it a try. Find a place where it's not awkward. Find a place where this will not be self-conscious for you. But find a place where when you read the Bible, you read it out loud. And when you pray, you pray out loud. Here's two reasons why. Number one, at least for me, sometimes I'm reading the Bible or I'm trying to pray. My mind begins to wonder. And I begin to daydream. And ten minutes later, I'm way over here thinking about something just totally unrelated. And all of a sudden, I wake up and realize... And I was supposed to be praying, or I was supposed to be reading. How did I wind up way over here? So instead of just having my eyes focus on the words of the page, if I begin to speak it, say it, now my mouth is engaged, I'm verbalizing, my ears here, I'm getting more of the senses involved. It's easier to focus. And then number two, whenever I talk to another person, I talk out loud, and they talk out loud to me. Why not communicate to God in that way? So let's say it's one of those days, one of those crazy busy days where you just got a ton of things you need to do, so you've only got 15 minutes. I mean, hopefully there'll be other times when you got more time. But it's one of those days, just 15 minutes. Let's make those 15 minutes really count. So that day, when you sit down, take a deep breath and just pause for a moment. Slow yourself down for a moment. Just focus on a few verses and think about what you're reading. This is God talking to me. What's he trying to say to me today? What kind of wisdom is he trying to share? And then you respond. You pray. You, you've been reading something. It provokes a thought. You respond. And just be honest. Wherever you are, good, bad, ugly that day, wherever you're at, just be honest. God, here's my heart right now. Here's the kind of help I need. And then you hop in the car to go to work. Well, you're in the car. You're going to have a lot of alone time. Or if you're in the car and you're driving the kids to school, then you get your kids to help you out in this. Here's another way to sow the Spirit. Sing. <laughs> a couple weeks from now, when Rob preaches from the book of Zephaniah, you're going to hear about this. In the book of Zephaniah, we learn that God is a singer. He loves to sing. It's one of the special ways he communicates to us. There's just something about singing that stirs up the heart, that moves and motivates people. If you don't believe me, just come here in a couple weeks to VBS. And you stand here and listen to 400 boys and girls just sing their hearts out. See, God uses singing to get us excited. To get us really excited about the things that truly matter. Now some of you are going to say, but David, I can't sing. I just don't have an ear for music. I get that. Then let somebody else do the singing for you. Download an app and turn it up loud. And just make sure, word of caution, make sure it's the right kind of song. Just because they say it's a Christian song doesn't always guarantee. You make sure you're listening to the right lyrics. The lyrics that tell you the truth about God who he really is and what he's really like. But through that powerful medium of music, let God stir up 
the affections of your heart. See, through all these activities, what you're doing is you're creating room. You're creating space where now the Holy Spirit of God can actually begin to have an influence upon your life and He can develop a new heart. He can begin to create new delights and new desires and new attitudes. Let me finish this way. I, I know this is a really old story. You've heard it a thousand times before, but I think it really fits with what we're trying to understand here today. Back in the early 1900s, there's this concert pianist from Poland. His name was Ignace Paderewski, one of the best-known musicians of his day and time. You get on the Internet and take a look at his picture, kind of a stern-looking fellow, kind of intimidating. But he was admired in that day and time, just admired all over the wor world. Well, anyway, he was coming to America for a performance. It was one of these black tie affairs, one of these high society kind of gatherings. All the rich and famous turned out for this once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, it's not just any day of the week you get a chance to hear somebody like this play the piano. Well, sitting in the audience that night was a mother and her nine-year-old boy, a boy who just started playing the piano, and he wasn't quite sure yet if he liked it or not. And so the mother thought she was kind of hoping that by hearing the great Paderewski, her boy might get inspired to want to play the piano some more. Well, anyway, they're sitting there that night waiting for the longest time to, for this concert to get started. For some reason, it had been delayed, and so the little guy's getting restless. So when the mother turns around to talk to her friends, the little boy saw his opportunity. He slipped out of his seat. Man, I'm bored. I need something to do. And suddenly he got an idea. He looked up on the stage, and he saw that piano. Nobody's doing anything with it. I, I know something to do with it. So he walked down the aisle, and he came up on the stage, sat down on the leather stool, put his hands on that ebony grand piano, and he began to play. He played Chopsticks. Dun, 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 dun. It's the only, thing, the only song he knew. So he began to play. Immediately, there's a hush in the crowd, frowns in all the faces of the people. That boy doesn't belong up there. So you could hear from various places in the audience, people begin to shout out, where's his mom? Stop him. Somebody stop him. Get that boy away from there. Well, backstage, Paderewski could hear the uproar. He leaned out behind the curtains to see what was happening, and he realized things are starting to get ugly, really ugly. So he just quietly walked out on the platform without saying a word. He walked up behind the boy, leaned over, put his hands around on either side, and Paderewski began to play too, just began to improvise, to create a counter melody, something that would go along with and complement the chopsticks. And as Paderewski began to play, he leaned over and whispered in the boy's ear, you keep playing too. You're doing fine, son. You really are. You're doing a good job with the chopsticks. You keep playing. You do your part. Let me do my part. Let's play this song together. And suddenly the crowd was amazed as the two were playing together because now this simple song became this elegant piece of music. And why? Because now the master was performing along with the child. Isn't that our story? Hammering away at life every day, trying to do our best, and yet some days it just doesn't seem to amount to much. It sounds like chopsticks. And we get so discouraged. But then we open our hearts to God's Holy Spirit. We invite the Master, come and be a part of this. And He does. And He leans over and He whispers. He says, you keep going. You keep playing. You keep doing your part. Just let me add something to it. And with His grace and love, with his strength and wisdom, he adds that finishing touch. And all of a sudden, out of this very ordinary moment, he produces something noble and beautiful and extraordinary. 
Isn't that exactly what the Bible's teaching here in the book of Galatians? You sow to the Spirit, and from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, want, we want to surrender. We want to yield ourselves to the leadership and influence of your Holy Spirit because God, only he can change the heart. God, we want your spirit to create new delights and new desires and new attitudes. God, we want to be conformed to the image of your Son. So, Father, may it be your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, that empowers and enables us to live like Jesus. And it's for that blessing that we pray in Jesus' name.